Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 51, 1 through 6. Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoings according to your great compassion. Wash me completely clean of my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Because I know my wrongdoings, my sin is always right in front of me. I've sinned against you, you alone. I've committed evil in your sight. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict completely correct when you issue your judgment. Yes, I was born in guilt, in sin, from the moment my mother conceived me. And yes, you want truth in the most hidden places. You teach me wisdom in the most secret space. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. At one time, you were like a dead person because of all the things you did wrong and your offenses against God. You used to live like people of this world. You followed the rule of a destructive spiritual power. This is the spirit of disobedience to God's will that is now at work in persons whose lives are characterized by disobedience. At one time, you were like those persons. All of you used to do whatever felt good and whatever you thought you wanted so that you were children headed for punishment just like everyone else. However, God is rich in mercy. He brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. He did this because of his great love that he has for us. We are saved by God's grace. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 6, 9 through 12. Pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us this bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you, just as you also forgive those who have wronged us. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the way that you speak to us. We ask now that by your Holy Spirit you would come, soften our hearts to receive what you're saying to us, that we would see and hear, understand and believe, and change us, Lord, through this encounter with you in your word. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. About 10 years ago or so, there was a book on prayer that made it up the New York Times bestseller list. And every once in a while, there's a book about spirituality or meditation or prayer that will show up like that. But this is from a Christian writer. And the book was called Help, Thanks, Wow, Three Essential Prayers for Life. 
Now, it's a dangerous thing to judge a book by the title on its cover, but that's just what I'm about to do. (laughs) I don't know that the book only addresses those three prayers, but the reduction of Christian prayer to help thanks wow is at once assuring and disconcerting. It's assuring because it sounds simple, and it is indeed three common prayers. Help! I'm in trouble! Thanks! You did it, God. Thank you for flowers and sunsets and dolphins. (laughs) And wow! (laughs) The wonder of it all. But it strikes me that there's a word missing from this, a word that really has been part of Christian prayer for a very long time, and the word is sorry. Now, it's possible that the author wrapped the idea of sorry into the word help, but maybe it's also because we don't want to have to pray sorry. It's okay to talk to God about sin so long as it isn't our sin. It's okay to talk to God about someone else's sin. That, after all, is why we pray, help. They've done something wrong. (laughs) But sorry is a different kind of prayer. A hundred years ago or so, the British novelist G.K. Chesterton joked that original sin is the only Christian doctrine that we have proof of. All you had to do was look at your own life or... Maybe society around you would say, well, there you go. There's proof of original sin. But I wonder if 100 years later we could say the same thing. I wonder, actually, if the reason we're hesitant to say a prayer like, sorry, if the reason for that is because we really don't like to talk about sin. That our difficulty is not just that we don't want to ask for forgiveness, but we don't want to talk about the thing that requires forgiveness, i.e., sin. This morning we're in our series of the, on the Lord's Prayer and we've called it the series Praying with Jesus. And this morning we're focusing on that line in the prayer that says, Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. And we're forced to come face to face, not only with a sorry, but with our sin. And so in Matthew 6 verses 9 through 12, Jesus says, Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. And give us the bread we need for today and forgive us for the ways we have wronged you just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. I'm back to my normal three points today so you can take a deep breath. It may not go shorter but there will be fewer things to write down. And the first part of the phrase that I want us to focus in on is this beginning prayer. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways we have wronged you. And the the first thing to notice from this prayer is that we have to confront and confess sin. We actually have to name it. We actually have to confront it. We've got to deal with it. We can't duck out of this. The Greek word used here in the Gospel of Matthew for this prayer, for this word for sin, is the word that often is used to refer to debt. And this is why in older translations you hear, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or maybe the even older English word, forgive us our trespasses. And actually, throughout the scriptures, there are different words, both in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament, and visuals and pictures and illustrations to help us understand that sin takes many forms. 
We heard in our Old Testament reading this morning, Psalm 51. Well, Psalm 51 alone has four different Hebrew words for sin used in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, that well-known prayer of confession from David that's been used in liturgical prayers of confession. There is a word that we translate as rebellion. That's what sometimes has been called the sins of commission. Like you set out to do this. You were sinning like it's your J-O-B. That's some, like someone gave you this mission. That's outright rebellion. And then there's the sin of, the, the, another word that's used in Psalm 51 is that word that's translated waywardness. Where you're just sort of drifting along. You were kind of just fell asleep at the wheel and the car started to change lanes. You stop paying attention to your life and habits and you wake up one day and you're like, gosh, maybe it's not just one glass of wine here and there. Maybe it's actually become more of a problem waywardness. And then there's another word that is translated as failure, where this is what's sometimes called the sins of omission. There's something we were supposed to do. There was something that we really needed to do. You were supposed to call your mom today. The sins of omission, it's a failure. And then the final word that's used in Psalm 51 is a word that's translated evil. You look around at the world and you're like, yeah, I see evil. And you can think about abuse and horrible things that happen, cover-ups of those situations. And you think, there's no other word to use here except that's evil. And Psalm 51 alone gives us a lot of different ways of talking about sin. But I'd like to suggest to you this morning that actually it's the Jewish and Christian worldview that have given us in Western societies in particular, but in other societies around the world, it's given us the notion of guilt and personal responsibility. That actually the the notion of guilt and personal responsibility is a legacy of Jewish and Christian thought. And ancient teachers and writers did not always talk about the world that way. For example, the old Greek tragedy in which the story of Oedipus is told. I don't know if you recall this. I had to double check with my high school daughter this morning. This is the way the tragedy is told, right? Oedipus, it's fated over him, prophesied that he would grow up to kill his parents. And so to avoid this fate, they gave him away to others to raise him. He never knew who his, bio, who his biological parents were. And yet he grows up and through a series of events, he ends up doing exactly what they said he would do. He would kill his parents. Now this is not just a Greek myth. This is a way of making meaning in the world. This means that the Greeks were saying to one another, when you see tragedy... Understand that you can't change fate. There's no personal responsibility if it's all fate. We don't talk about guilt when it's just fate. And so you look at the trouble in the world, and by this worldview, you just sort of shrug your shoulders and say, wow, not sure how we could have avoided that. But fast forward a couple thousand years, another great story told by the English playwright William Shakespeare, the story of Hamlet. And Hamlet also has a tragedy that occurs. His parents are murdered. But the crux of the story of Hamlet is about his own agency. What now will you do? How will you respond? I would like to suggest to you that the reason Hamlet is different than the story of Oedipus is is part of the legacy of Judeo-Christian thoughts. 
One says, we're stuck. The world is terrible, but we're stuck. The other says, you're never stuck. There is culpability, there is responsibility, and there is agency. One leaves us with shame and despair. The other leaves us with guilt, but hope. We have to confront and confess our sin. I have a friend who teaches theology at Cambridge University in the UK, and he's an American. And he wrote an essay saying that his toughest lecture to these undergrads and grad students was the lecture about sin. Because he said, how do I explain sin to these young college students? And he said, oh, I know. He said, maybe I could start by telling them all the statistics of war and poverty and crime in communities or in countries around the world. And he says, no, but then they might think sin is just something out there, an abstraction. And so he thought, maybe I'll go with a personal story and have them reflect and write a little journal entry about all the ways they were wronged as a child. Their mother never bought them cocoa puffs or whatever. So that's personal, but it almost can seem trivial. And you could work your way around it. And then he thought, maybe I'll point to the social and show them movements like the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or Stop Asian American Hate and say, look, can't you see there's something broken in society that these movements are trying to address? And he's trying to come up with ways to illustrate it. The thing is, when the Bible uses words for sin, it's trying to name all of it. It's trying to name the individual and the institutional, the personal and the social. It's trying to name the generational and the individual. It's trying to name all of it. When we say sin, we're talking about the whole big mess. You know, in the last year, people have said very often, well, there's two, we're fighting two pandemics right now. And they'll say covid And then you're like, and how will you fill in the blank? And they'll say COVID and racism or COVID and alcoholism or COVID and depression. The way the scriptures tell it, sin is the original pandemic that affects all of us. And even if you are not manifesting the symptoms of sin at the moment, you're probably having to quarantine because of someone else's. (laughs) It's affecting you. Sin is out there. It's affecting you. And so when the scriptures tell us to pray, forgive us our sins, forgive us for the ways we've wronged you, it is at times a petition. Yes, it's me. I've done something wrong. It is at times a petition, and it is at other times intercession. This is why you see in the Old Testament, Abraham's praying on behalf of his family. God, if there's just a few righteous, don't destroy these cities. Asking for forgiveness as a form of intercession. Moses would do that in the wilderness. Solomon does it at the dedication of the temple. Forgive us. There's something about this view of the world that says, I know what's wrong with the world. It's sin. And that's a shorthand for a whole lot of things. And the only response is to pray, forgive us our sins. Sometimes you pray it as a petition. It's for me. Sometimes you pray it as intercession. We don't look out at the world and the problems in the world or the problems in our family or the problems in our workplace and shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know. It's fate. We look out and say, it's sin. God. Forgive us. 
And then the second half of this prayer says, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. I wish it wouldn't have said that. (laughs) You know, we said last week that when we get into these parts of the prayer that are asking for something, we are very aware that the pronouns are plural. Give us this day our daily bread. But in that line, our connection to one another is implicit. Give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say as we give our bread away to others. It doesn't say, it's implicit, it's hidden in there, but it's not explicitly said. But this time Jesus makes it explicit. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Somehow these two things are connected and so the second thing we observe from this prayer is that the same heart that lets mercy in is the same heart that lets mercy out. Now, I dabbled in that, those examples of literature, though I don't really know what I'm talking about. And I'm about to dabble in medical science, so I totally don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but from what I understand, the heart and its different chambers have valves that work to allow blood flow in or out, depending on the chamber, and then it seals. And you don't really want one valve doing both things, but you also can't have your heart only letting blood in or only letting blood out. You can't go to your cardiologist and he says, uh, we've got a problem, the blood's pumping in, but it's not pumping out. And you say, doc, that's all right, man. I, half my life is good. The doctor would look at you and be like, no, man, you're going to die. <laughs> like, we got to fix that valve issue so that the blood can come in one side, come out the other, whatever, however it exactly works. But the same heart that lets blood in, has to pump blood out. The same heart that lets God's mercy in has to let God's mercy out. And Jesus felt so strongly about this that after the prayer was over, the very next verse he says, I want to say something again for the people in the back. Verse 14, if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. Now maybe... If you grew up in kind of a legalistic or very religious backdrop, background, or that's what you have in your mind, the tendency is to hear these words like a threat. Like God's threatening you, saying, I'll forgive you, but if you don't forgive them, I am not forgiving you anymore. No soup for you. <laughs> Taking it back. But that's not how, what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you, you just have to understand, this is how it works. If the mercy of God is going to enter into you, it's got to flow out of you. And if you close off your heart to giving mercy to others, you're actually closing off your heart to mercy from God. It's like those doors that swing. You think you can shut it so it doesn't go out, but when shutting it, you're actually shutting mercy from coming in. It doesn't work like that. The same heart that lets mercy in is the same heart that lets mercy out. Desmond Tutu was the first black bishop in South Africa. And after apartheid ended, Tutu actually became the archbishop in South Africa and was named by President Mandela as the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And Tutu tells the story of his experiences of being the head of this Truth and Reconciliation Commission in a book entitled, No Future Without Forgiveness. Now that title alone, that, there's a book title that will preach. No future without forgiveness. And in it, 
Bishop Tutu describes an old African concept known as Ubuntu. Ubuntu is the idea that I am because you are. My humanity is bound up with your humanity. And Tutu contrasts it from the European philosophy that I think, therefore I am. And he said, for us, I am human because I belong. I'm human because I belong to you. I participate and I share. And he said, but there are things that threaten our solidarity with one another, acts of violence. But he says, it's not just violence, it's also bitterness. And in this quote from Bishop Tutu, he says, anger, resentment, lust for revenge, even success through aggressive competitive, competitiveness are corrosive of this good. I love that he used the word corrosive. Have you ever heard the example that someone says unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die? And Bishop Tutu is saying, yes, violence destroys the good, but so does resentment. And so he says, to forgive is not just to be altruistic. It's actually the best form of self-interest. What dehumanizes you inexorably dehumanizes me. And it is forgiveness that gives people resilience, enabling them to survive and emerge still human, despite all the efforts to dehumanize them. Despite all the efforts to dehumanize them, it's forgiveness that gives a brutalized people resilience, enabling them to survive. But lest you mishear what Bishop Tutu was saying, he was the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it was named that way because they insisted on a trial to investigate the claims of human rights abuses. And there was both a sort of a carrot and a stick in that commission, but the whole idea was there is no reconciliation unless there is first truth. People have to tell the truth about what they've done wrong. This isn't a forgiveness. The way Tutu is describing it is not a kind of gloss and to say, it was no big deal. This is why if I, if I ever apologize to you, please don't ever say to me, it was nothing. I would rather you said, that did kind of hurt, but I forgive you. And Tutu is not describing a kind of forgiveness that glosses. It's a forgiveness that includes truth in order to arrive at reconciliation. But forgiveness is not in itself reconciliation. Praying this prayer is not the same thing as saying, I'm ready to trust this person again. Praying this prayer is not the same as saying, I guess I'll continue to be in relationship with this person. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is not trust. And forgiveness is also not healing. Saying, praying, Lord, forgive me as I forgive them, is not saying, and God, I don't, I, I don't, it doesn't hurt anymore. You can pray this prayer and still hurt. You can pray this prayer and still have wounds. Praying this prayer is the beginning. Tim Keller said earlier this week in an essay that forgiveness in Christian tradition is a set of practices. It's not primarily a feeling because you might still feel pain or even anger. It's not the restoration of relationship, because that could take time, but it's a set of practices, and we could do whole, a whole sermon series on the sets of practices of, that forgiveness looks like. But for today, this is a series on prayer. 
will say that one of the practices that forgiveness looks like is it looks like praying the Lord's Prayer. It looks like saying before the Father, God, forgive me. And God, I, I no longer hold this person in my debt. They don't owe me. And chances are the people that you really need to forgive, they could never repay what they stole from you anyway. They could never repay that debt. So before God, you're releasing them and saying, God, before you, I release them of this. The same heart that lets mercy in is the same heart that lets mercy out. The final thing that we need to see that's kind of tucked into the very fabric of this prayer is that God has always been the God of mercy and forgiveness. He's always been the God of mercy and forgiveness. This isn't new for God. This isn't Jesus showing up on the scene and saying, okay, okay, you have heard, but now I say. He does a lot of that. But he doesn't do that with regard to God. He does a lot of the you have heard, but now I say unto you about how we're supposed to live. But when it comes to the God that he reveals, Jesus makes the picture come into complete focus Not because God has changed, but because now our vision is clear. And maybe when you read this, you can actually look back in the Old Testament and recognize, oh, you've always been this God. You've always been the God of forgiveness. In fact, it's forgiveness that sets Christianity apart from all other religions in the world. You know that my dad grew up in a Hindu home. Ask a Hindu about the concept of sin. There isn't really a concept of sin. There's just the notion of an angry God that you've got to appease. But it's not the same as guilt and forgiveness. Talk to a Buddhist about forgiveness, particularly the Western versions of Buddhism. And you'll discover that Buddhism is focused on the psychological effects of bitterness. And that's why we arrive at such confusing phrases like, I need to forgive myself. We want the psychological payoff of the feeling of forgiveness. But the, the start of that is when we recognize God's forgiveness. And yes, we do need to receive it and accept it and believe it. And that's, that might be what Christians mean. But when Buddhists talk about it, they're talking about just letting go of anger and bitterness. But how do you do that if someone else is not bearing the weight of the wrong? But it's not just ancient religions that don't understand the concept of sin and forgiveness, it's also our quote-unquote postmodern religions. Think about for a moment about the market. Can the market forgive your mistakes? No. Your competitors will seize the moment you fail. Some of you in the business world, you understand this. If you mess up, you make a mistake, there's a technicality in the house contract that you're trying, something goes wrong and boom, your competitor pounces right on it. Nobody says in the business world, I'm so sorry you made that mistake. I totally forgive you. You keep your clients. You keep the contract. That, you know. The market doesn't offer forgiveness. It only has victors and losers. What about cancel culture? Isn't it true that we kind of live in a world that is more moralistically fundamentalistic than before? There is a clarity about right and wrong. It's just that there is no grace or atonement or repentance or forgiveness. 
And so people can be so sure that they shouldn't have tweeted that or said that or posted that, so sure that they can mobilize the shame mob on social media within minutes to the point where executives can lose their jobs, faculty members can be uninvited from guest lectureships. These are real examples, by the way. Cancel culture is quick to be fundamentalist about its own morality but completely bankrupt in its ability to handle guilt. So what if a person says, I was wrong, that was a foolish decision. No, we'll never reinstate you. It's over. You're gone. There's no forgiveness in the market. There's no forgiveness in cancel culture. But all the way back in Exodus, when Moses asked Yahweh to reveal himself, this is what he heard. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God who is compassionate and merciful, very patient, full of great loyalty and faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, whatever the Hebrew word is for it. Yet by no means clearing the guilty. He's a God of justice. There are consequences. Punishing for their parents' sin, their children and their grandchildren. This is interpreted, best understood as the ripple effect of our decisions, that we don't live in a vacuum. It impacts others to the third and fourth generation. After the book of Exodus, you have the book of Leviticus, which I know is like your favorite part of the Bible to read. You're probably just soaking in it this morning. Leviticus. Leviticus gives us a lot of instructions about sacrifices and my impression at one time was that, oh, Leviticus is all about sin and God just can't handle sin and God's like, eek, sin. Got to have like sacrifices. Actually, the majority of sacrifices in Leviticus are, are, are really about how to commemorate key events. How to, this is how to thank God for this and this is how to remember this and this is how to mark this occasion. You kill this animal to commemorate this thing. It's not that different than us. Like every Thanksgiving... You gotta have turkey. But if we're honest, who actually likes turkey? The meat is kind of dry. It's not the most tasty. You can marinate it. You can brine it. But it, I mean, well, that, that does work a little bit. But chances are it's going to be flavorless. That's why we've got to add stuff to it. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm just going to make turkey today. You do it because it's the right animal to kill to commemorate this event. It's just like Leviticus. Kill these two doves when you're about to, you know, thank God for this. The other kinds of sacrifices in Leviticus are about cleansing. I mean, that's like us saying, make sure you wash your hands for 10 seconds or more and then hand sanitize and wear a mask. And that's like Leviticus kind of stuff. There's a contagion that we're trying to deal with. But there is something unique. The Old Testament scholar Bill Arnold talks about how ancient Israel, the ancient Israelites had a kind of offering that was unheard of in other ancient civilizations. Like the religions that I mentioned from the East, ancient cultures had a way of sacrificing to appease the gods, to say, please don't be angry, please give me favor, please grow my crops, please do this. But that's not the same as sin and forgiveness. But in Leviticus... We come to this moment where we're introduced to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where there are two animals 
One on which the priest places his hands and says, On you be the sins of the people. And the goat leaves the place, exits into the wilderness. The other they take and slaughter it and sprinkle its blood in the Holy of Holies. And you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on? I mean, this is the, you can't compare Leviticus to our day. You have to compare it to its own day. And when you compare Leviticus to its own day, what you recognize is, wait a minute, God's actually giving them a way to deal with the presence of sin and the penalty of sin. The presence of sin, the presence of guilt. Again, in our world, if you say, well, you're guilty and we're shaming you and we're calling you out. Everybody knows how to call people out, but who can carry the guilt? In Leviticus, thousands of years ago, God says, this is how we'll carry the guilt. We'll remove it from you and send it out of the camp. Not only does it deal with the presence of sin and guilt, but it deals with the penalty of it. Can someone else pay for this? But both of these things point forward to the New Testament where there is one whose very blood will not only deal with the presence of sin and the penalty of sin, but will also once and for all break the power of sin. And his name is Jesus. And this is why in the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, by the way, is your best shot at interpreting Leviticus. And Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, Almost everything is cleansed by blood. According to the law's regulation, there is no forgiveness without blood being shed. Why is that? Because the scriptures want us to know that sin is the opposite of life-giving. It's life-taking. It results in death. On the other hand, blood gives life. And there is one who will give his life for you to have life. Verse 24, Christ didn't enter into the holy, holy place, which is a copy of the true holy place made by human hands, but Christ entered into heaven itself so that he now appears in God's presence for us. He didn't enter to offer himself over and over again every Yom Kippur, every year, like the high priest enters the earthly holy place every year with blood that isn't his. If that were so, then Jesus would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world, but instead... Here it is. Here's the gospel. The heart of the good news. Instead, he has now appeared once at the end of all ages to get rid of sin by sacrificing himself. Hallelujah. Now he's appeared at the end of all ages to deal with sin, get rid of sin, its presence, its penalty, and its power by sacrificing himself. When we came back from Portland, Oregon, after three years of living there, my parents were in Bible school. My sister and I were, I was in middle school, my sister in high school, and we moved back to Malaysia, and my parents took over a Bible college that the church in Malaysia had started. And you may not know this, but my mom is an excellent Bible teacher, and she would teach all the classes about the Old Testament. And I was homeschooling at the time, and so I would, I would go to these offices in the church and try to finish my homeschool work quickly so that I could sneak in the back of my mom's classes and listen to her teach the Old Testament. And I grew up thinking, yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, all that stuff's great, but the Old Testament. <laughs> and I grew up recognizing that because of my mom and the way she taught me to love the Word of God and to see the gospel and its good news 
even there. But years before that, years before that, I remember sitting down with my mom. I was seven, maybe six, seven, maybe eight years old. And she was telling me about Jesus dying on the cross. And I said to her, well, mom, I mean, Jesus died for the world. And she said, he died for you. And I said, well, but he died for the world. She said, yeah, but he died for you. And it took a few times because I'm a little thick-headed, even as a kid. I was that way. But eventually it hit home and I got it. This was for me. This was for me. The Lord's Prayer begins by addressing our Father in heaven, setting the tone for this whole prayer, that this whole prayer has to be prayed in a personal, not private, but personal, intimate way. When you pray, Jesus says, go to your room, close the door, and pray like this. See, it's possible to pray these words about forgive us our sins as we forgive those and feel very high and mighty about it, feel very pious about it, feel like you're doing something about all that's wrong with the world. But don't miss that Jesus died for you. Don't miss in all of this that the mercy of God is for you. The forgiveness that comes from the blood of Christ is for you. And so before we come to the table this morning, I wondered if we could just pause in this moment and open up our hands before the Lord and just begin to reflect again on just how radical and revolutionary the blood of Christ is, the message of forgiveness is life-changing. Life-changing, earth-shattering. Maybe we can sing the words of that old song together. Just our voices, oh precious is that voice. 